welcome to anybody that is joining us here in our sanctuary for the first time or if you're joining us online for the first time. We are so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning in our study of Revelation, we are moving past the millennial kingdom of Christ, past the final great white throne judgment, which is the final judgment of the wicked, into eternity, into a time that some refer to as the eternal state. Revelation chapter 21 is is where we get into the final phase and the culmination of everything, heaven, paradise forever. You know, since there has been a God's people, I think there's been a preoccupation with heaven. It's the expected end for all believers. It's our hope. It's what we look forward to. It's what we can't wait for. The hope of heaven is is built into the, the very fabric and identity of all Christians. And it's such an important truth that it's something that as believers we should think about often. Heaven should be something that occupies our thoughts often. We should be some people that are eagerly looking forward to this. You know, some of us remember when we were kids and we knew we were going to Disneyland on Saturday. Wow, what kind of week was that, right? Especially the night before, oh my goodness. Couldn't even sleep, the excitement was so exciting. Well. Heaven is, is, is quite a bit more than Disneyland, okay? And um, it's quite a bit more to look forward to. It should elicit excitement and joy and anticipation in God's people. But sadly, the, the culture we live in today um, is, is really a culture of self-gratification. It's a culture of indulgence. And unfortunately, the culture that we live in has such a grip on many Christian believers, such a hold on them, has such a grip in so many churches that it has made those Christian believers and those churches very worldly. And it has made them so worldly that the concept of heaven has become something that's eh, disinteresting. And that's really what uh, the influence of the world has on us. As the world will put before us all the things and the trinkets and all the stuff we think is going to make us happy, we lose sight, we lose focus, we lose enthusiasm for heaven and what's to come before us. I read one guy said, it seems that the less one holds to the things of this world, the greater their anticipation of heaven will be. But the more immersed and gripped by the things of this world, the less we tend to think about heaven at all. You know, we can find ourselves consumed with passing things, temporary things, things that are but a vapor in the big picture of eternity. And, and like Mark Twain, when he was told about heaven, we could find ourselves saying what he said, you take heaven, I'll go to Bermuda. But the question that, that a lot of us have is, what is heaven like? When we start thinking about heaven, what is it like? What happens there? What's it going to be like? What's the experience of heaven going to be like? I mean, really going to be like? Sometimes it's caricatured as, as people sitting on clouds playing harps for eternity, right? And uh, they go, that's it. That's heaven. Well, that's not the picture of heaven. But we should know, and we should want to know, and we should look forward to knowing what heaven is we should look forward to being there because it is our home. 
That's what the Bible says about heaven for believers. It is our home. Paul the apostle said our citizenship is in heaven. And heaven is our home because that's where our Father is. That's where our Savior is. That's where our Comforter is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Godhead, three in one, God Almighty. And so today we're going to start in Revelation 21 looking at heaven and looking at the eternal state and what Scripture has to teach us about this, that we would be people excited about what's to come in heaven. To look at this time when God makes all things new. But first, we're going to spend time in worship as we do, and I just encourage all of you today, forget about everything but God. (laughs) Focus on Him. Focus on the eternity that waits us with Him, because it is going to be glorious. And everything He's done in our lives is in preparation of this time. The Word that we have to study reveals to us what is to come, that we would be people that live for Him today, but live in anticipation of the eternity that we're going to have in his presence, and it's going to be glorious. Father, we thank you so much. We're so excited for who you are, God. We're so excited for heaven, Lord, and yet, God, I know many of us, and myself, Lord, I would confess, Lord, we have times where heaven isn't maybe as exciting as it should be. Lord, that we don't think about it enough or look forward to it in a way that that would indicate our, our, our enthusiasm for what is to come, God. And Lord, we just say, forgive us, Lord, for for being distracted. But Lord, today as we enter into Revelation 21 and looking at eternity, looking at the forever that waits those who know you, that have called you their Lord and Savior, God, encourage us, inspire us. It just fill us, Lord, with joy and anticipation for what is to come, that we would be people who live in this world, in this time, knowing it's temporary knowing it's but a vapor, knowing it's passing, so that, Lord, we wouldn't invest our everything into this world, but we would invest our everything into the one to come. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you. Be glorified. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to jump into our Bible study today. We are in Revelation chapter 21. And as we said in the intro, what this is all about is our home. You see, our home, your home, Christian, is heaven. It's not here. It's not this earth. It's not this time. It's heaven. Our home is there, and that home is infinitely greater than anything this world will ever have for us. You know, that's why Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, and you might think, death is gain? How is that gain? Because this physical life here on earth is not the end all of everything. The next life, heaven, is what awaits those who believe in Jesus Christ, and it is definitely gain. You know, heaven is a big topic in Revelation. The book of Revelation mentions heaven 55 times. Um, It's also a big topic throughout Scripture. It's mentioned hundreds of times. But the first mention of heaven in Revelation um, is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, as Jesus was writing to the church in Philadelphia. And this is what he says. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now, the second mention, we're not going to go through all 55, I promise, but the second mention of heaven in Revelation, we then find in chapter 4, after the seven letters to the seven churches are completed, John writes this. He goes, after this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, we've mentioned this a number of times in our study of Revelation, but when he says after this there, it's referring to after the church age. You see, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are, are letters to seven real churches of the time, but, but they're also letters to the church throughout the church age. And so after this, he says, we see that John was then called up to heaven from where, from the perspective of heaven, he then observes and records the events of the seven-year tribulation that takes place on the earth. It's one of the reasons why we believe, and I believe, that the church is raptured prior to the tribulation. Again, I know there's different interpretations of that, and I still love you, okay? But I believe that we are raptured prior to the tribulation. This is one of the supports for that. But then from heaven... John then observes the, 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 the playing out of the seven-year tribulation upon the earth. Then he records the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of that tribulation period. Then he records the millennial reign of Christ on earth, the thousand-year reign of Christ here upon this earth. Then he records at the end of Revelation 20, final judgment on the wicked. And now we come to chapter 21. A whole new episode in the story of everything. A whole new episode in the eschatological timeline. But really, we are leaving time as we know it and understand it and entering into what some refer to as the eternal state, the forever we talk about in heaven. Now, what is the eternal state? Well, Revelation chapter 1 and chapter, chapter 21 and 22 kind of get into this and really tells us um, that its existence in and on the new heaven and new earth for eternity, with God in his presence. It's a time when all sin and evil and wickedness and suffering and selfishness and, and, and the death of the first creation is completely gone. Death, that was the result of sin, is gone forever. Now, some have questions about eternity when we talk about it, and so we're going to answer or try to answer a couple of those today in our study of God's Word. And one of the big questions of eternity that comes up is, when we are there, are we going to experience time the way we experience it here? And that's a great question. That's a big question people have about eternity. To answer that, um, I start with our understanding of God. You see, on one hand, the Bible teaches us that God is timeless. God created time. God is therefore not subject to time. We know that um, based, on, based upon physics, modern physics, based upon the theories of relativity by Einstein, that, that time is relative. Time is not fixed, right? Time is something that has physical properties physics has learned. Time is affected by or changes, um, is changed by mass. It's changed by acceleration. It's changed by gravity. Right? Physics tells us that time, as we understand it, speeds up 
and slows down based upon things that can affect it. And so therefore, physics teaches us that time um, exists because matter exists. Okay, that's, that's all the physics we're going to get into today, okay? Um, but God is not matter, right? God is not matter. God created all matter. And thus, he created time. And thus, he exists outside of time. And so, time began when God created the universe. Prior to that, God just existed. That's the picture Scripture gives us. He just existed. What did he exist in? Where did he exist? What was it like there? Well, we got finite minds, and I tried to ponder that for a couple days this week in studying this and found out my little itty-bitty brain can't really comprehend timelessness very well, right? Um, It's funny, because of our finite minds, we could really only grasp the concept of God's timelessness by using words in our language that define things based upon our understanding of time, right? We use words to describe this timelessness of God like he has no beginning and no end. We use words like he is eternal, he is infinite, he is everlasting. In fact, Psalms chapter 90 verse 2 says this, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity, you are God. And you'll notice there it says, not you were God, you are God. You are presently existing as God from eternity to eternity. Yeah, I don't fully get it either, right? But it's just he always was. He always is. He always will be, right? Somebody put it this way. To to understand eternity to eternity, it's once upon a time to happily ever after, (laughs) right? Imperfect description, but still. So God is timeless, but God's creation Everything God created exists under the influence of time, exists in a moment-by-moment linear fashion, right? We know time exists, and we know how it operates, that time exists in a, in a linear fashion. We, we understand within the concept of time there is causality, right? You do something, then something happens, right? That's the concept of time and duration, You have degradation that exists within time. The concept of time allows for the uh, existence of a thing called entropy. If you don't know what entropy is, it's just the idea in physics that everything goes from order to chaos. And some of us is like, oh, that's what the inside of my car does. Order to chaos. That's what my house, my bedroom, right? We, We get it. Our bodies, entropy, right? We go from order to chaos, right? Wouldn't it be great to work out one time and then you're permanently in shape? doesn't happen. You have to keep going. And you might work out for years and years and years and years and years and then stop and guess what happens? Order to chaos, right? It exists within this, this existence. Now, the question then is, well, will we experience time in eternity? We don't really know definitively is, is my best answer, okay? But I will say this, that the Bible, tells, or the Bible tells us that we will have glorified bodies. That when we've um, left this state of existence, that we're going to have glorified bodies. And the indication, scripturally, is that those bodies are physical. That they have mass in some way. But we're also told that those, those glorified bodies 
have no entropy. They don't experience entropy. There's no order of chaos. There's no death. There's no decay. There's no degradation. That the bodies are perfect without sickness, without disease. They never get old. They're immortal. They're created to exist in the full presence of God in all his glory. And so therefore, some people go, well, if we're existing with God in God's presence in all his glory, and his glory includes his timelessness, um, well then, therefore, Maybe we're timeless as well. Some will point to uh, details in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 20, or 21 and 22, um, where it's indicated that, that in this eternal state, the cycle of day and night are done away with. There is no night, it tells us in chapter 22, because there's no need for the sun and the moon. God is the source of light, and he just illuminates everything. So there is no cycle of, of day and night. And so some people go, well, that indicates that the progression of time has ceased for us in eternity, and therefore we are timeless. Others, however, will point to scriptures like Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, that says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's duration. They'll point to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where we saw the martyrs, the tribulation saints that were under the altar in heaven, it tells us, in heaven. And they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? indicates duration. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, which is definitely during this eternity, it says, the tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. So it seems to be an indication of time. So we know God in, in his nature, he is timeless. He is outside the sphere of time. Right? That means he sees eternity past and eternity future in one glance. He sees it all at the same simultaneous moment. The passage of time is of no consequence to God um, from his timeless perspective, meaning one second is no different to God than a billion years. It's no different. But the eternal state, when we enter the eternal state, it's not us becoming exact in nature as God. Like, we're not becoming God when we get to heaven, right? Some cults teach that. But biblically, we don't. So, while God would continue in his timeless nature, because he is God Almighty, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will become timeless. We don't become God. We're not becoming the same as him in nature. And so, this new heaven and this new earth that Revelation 21 is talking about, it could still have time because there is mass we're going to see as we study through this. Um, it could be similar to what we experience now. It could be different in some way. Uh, we may experience time in a completely different way, um, in a way we can't comprehend now. So that's my answer about that, okay? One of the other big questions about eternity people have is, well, what is it going to look like? What's it going to be like? You know, sitting on a cloud playing a harp forever, that sounds kind of boring. Is, is that really what it is, you know? Um, interestingly enough, with all that the Bible has to say about heaven, um, there's not a tremendous amount of details uh, about what it looks like. There are specific details in, in Revelation 21 and 22. Get into it. There's a new heaven, verse 1. There's a new earth, verse 1. There's a new Jerusalem, verse 2. Those are the big details, physical details, if you will. We do know that there's no night. 
We're going to learn in chapter 22 that there's a tree of life and there's a river running down the middle of this city, right? There's some details. But those details, the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, tell us something interesting about heaven, about the eternal state, is that there's going to be a new creation. There's going to be a new creation wherein dwells the permanent, full, and total presence of God among his people. And so, Chapter 21 and 22 really point out seven specific things that are, that are notable differences between creation 1.0 and creation 2.0, all right? Verse 1 tells us that there's no more sea. Verse 4 tells us in chapter 21 that there's no more death, grief, crying, or pain. Chapter 22, verse 3 says there's no more curse. Chapter 22, verse 5 says there's no more night. Now, that's not an exhaustive description uh, by any means, but it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse. And you'll notice it's kind of more about what's not there than what is. Paul got to see heaven, or at least part of it. And in his writings, he says, I was prohibited from even writing it down. I was prohibited from, from even describing it. In fact, there are no words in the English language to describe what I saw. But we're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 21 in, in two parts, actually three parts. But the first eight verses, we're going to look at in two parts. So we'll look at some today and some next time, verses 1 through 4 today, verses 5 through 8 next time, which really focuses on um, what eternal life looks like in eternity. It really focuses on that word zoe that we talked about in a previous study, that life, that, that, that peace, that bliss, that contentment that is being in heaven, being in God's presence. Really, verses 1 through 8 are descriptive of what that looks like in heaven. And then later we'll get into the New Jerusalem, which is a major, major feature of heaven, um, which is the New Jerusalem, the capital of the redeemed in the eternity, uh, eternal state, which is the bulk of Revelation 21 and into 22. So read with me Revelation 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. It's a very hopeful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And it opens there with, then I saw, right? How many times have we read that phrase in John's revelation of Jesus Christ? <laughs> then I saw. It's throughout the whole book. Because John is the ultimate spectator, right? He is the ultimate spectator. He is the recipient of this amazing vision from Jesus Christ. And he's the one that's been told to, to not only witness it, but to write it down as it has been unfolded in successive parts. And so he's writing down everything he's been witnessing throughout this entire revelation. And as I've mentioned before, um, I think it's, it's best, rather than to try and squeeze these verses into some symbolic, non-literal interpretation, I personally believe that the proper or the best hermeneutic, which is the method of biblical interpretation, the best, best way to, to interpret uh, the Bible is to start with a literal interpretation. And so even with this section, I believe it's best to assume that what John says here is literal. 
that what he writes is what he saw, what he's witnessing here. He's writing down what's going to happen. And so we're going to deal with it that way. Now, I do understand that there are some major disagreements on whether this should be read symbolically or literally. You could spend countless hours online reading different points of view on this. Um, some of that comes through uh, the description of Jerusalem's size when we get into that in a couple weeks. What we're going to see is that he describes the new Jerusalem in very detailed dimensions, right? And some people go, well, if you put those dimensions on the earth, it's impossible. Therefore, it has to be symbolic. To which I say, did you miss new earth? Right? You, you, we're making assumptions. Anyways, we'll deal with that when we get there. But people fight over this. It must be one or the other. It, it must be symbolic or it must be literal. And, and I simply say, why can't it be both? <laughs> why can't it be both? Why can't it be a literal event, a literal place, a literal object that also has symbolic meaning, right? Is that something so unnatural to our understanding? How many of you are wearing a wedding ring? It's a literal thing, right? Does it also carry great symbolic meaning? Absolutely. What about the flag every country flies? Is it a literal thing? Yes. Does it also carry great symbolic meaning? Absolutely. And so I believe that what we're seeing here is both literal and it carries great symbolic meaning. So he starts out, he goes, then I saw a new heaven. A new heaven. Now, that word new means what you think new means, right? It's new. It's different. It's, 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 it's different than what was previous, right? It's brand new. But that word heaven in the Greek is this word oranos, oranos. And the word in the Greek simply means the heights or the elevated place. That's what this word in the Greek means. Um, this word in the Greek, however, is used to describe heaven in various meanings throughout Scripture. Now, we've mentioned this before, but biblically and in Jewish thought, the concept of the word heaven referred to three major things, right? Three major places, if you will. Um, biblically, and this word oranos, and, and in Jewish thought as well, the first heaven, or what was called the terrestrial heaven, referred to the sky and the atmosphere around the earth, right? They would refer to that as a heaven. Um, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says, observe the birds in the sky. The word sky is oranos, the word that is translated heaven, okay? Um, in Isaiah 55.10, he says, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven, now, does rain and snow come from outer space? I mean, I guess if, like, there's a big icy comet that crashes into us, but the idea there is it's referring to the sky, right? The first terrestrial heaven in the understanding. Then there was this idea that everything outside of our atmosphere or that we would call space, where the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies resided, that was considered the second heaven or the celestial heaven. And so, for example, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's not talking about the sky, the atmosphere of the earth. It's talking about space, the, the firmament, if you will, is one of the other ways to put it. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, Paul the Apostle, speaking of himself, says this. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. <laughs> was caught up into paradise. 
and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. And we referenced this already, right? This third heaven, or this idea of what he's referring to as a third heaven, was, was understood to be the, the spiritual realm, the, the transcendent realm beyond this creation where God lived, is also the place where angels dwelt, is also the place where dead believers go at this time in the chronology of history, right? The Bible tells us to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, right? Well, in our understanding of time, prior to the end of all things, when a believer dies today, they are in this heaven with God, is the idea scripturally. Now, this Greek word, oranos, then refers to the sky, the atmosphere, refers to outer space, and it refers to this spiritual transcendent realm. The word was also used in plural ways to just refer to everything above the planet Earth, right? So it was, it was used to say everything above the actual physical planet. And this is how it's used here in Revelation 21.1. It's used specifically when it says new heaven. It's referring to the sky, the atmosphere, space. It's the idea of terrestrial and celestial heaven altogether. And then he goes on to say, I saw a new earth. And earth in the Greek was referring to the physical planet that we're on in contrast to sky or space as the habitation of humanity. And so there's a new heaven and a new earth. In verse 1 in Revelation 21, it says, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now that word passed away literally means to cease to exist. To cease to exist biblically, this is supported. In 1 Corinthians 7.31, it tells us for this world in its current form is passing away. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day, and that day, word day is referring to epoch, era, time frame, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on this, his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So when we put all that together... What we see in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 21 when he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, this glimpse of eternity is giving us the picture that eternity is going to have a recreated universe and a recreated physical earth. There's going to be a physical recreation of some, of some kind here. A new heaven being everything that is not the planet earth, right? So referring to sky and referring to the space and all of that, the universe, and a new earth referring to a physical planet that will exist in that new universe. And as we're going to see later, that new earth is then inhabited by a redeemed humanity headquartered in a physical capital city called New Jerusalem, which exists as part of this new earth in this new heaven. And you go, what about the third heaven, right? The spiritual transcendent realm. Well, it doesn't specifically talk about that, but it still exists. I believe it's going to still exist and it will exist, but the idea is when we get to eternity, heaven, collectively as one term, all of it is, is heaven. It's paradise. It's 
perfection, meaning the new earth, the new sky, the new space, the existent spiritual realm. It's all existing together in perfection. But the picture is that there's no separation between them anymore. There's no separation, and we're going to get to that in a moment here. But heaven is not some disembodied existence, sitting on clouds, playing harps, floating in nothingness. Heaven is everything being perfect, none of it stained by sin in any possible way as God originally intended everything to be. We saw a glimpse of this, and we see a glimpse of this in the book of Genesis before the fall in the Garden of Eden, right? A perfect paradise where God dwelt in his full presence with man, and they walked together, and they had perfect unbroken fellowship. But that perfect existence was broken. Now, the perfect existence is what was intended, right? We see that in Genesis. We see that in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect existence and a perfect paradise created by God. Obviously, Adam and Eve were able to dwell in the presence of God, and so they had glorified bodies to some degree that were able to dwell in the presence of God. They were free from the curse. They were free from sin and death. They were free from all of that. And they were in perfect fellowship with him in his presence at all times. But as we spoke about in a previous study, if you'll remember, biblically, death, the concept of death, biblically, is always more than just physically ceasing, right? Death is more than just this physical body dying. It's not the expiration. Death, biblically, is the idea of separation, right? We looked at that. Sin entered the world, and it separated man from God. God said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Now, they ate the fruit. Did they drop dead right there in that moment? No. Now, degradation entered in. I believe that that was when entropy was introduced to the universe because at that point, the body then started to decay. So did creation. So did the world. So did everything God created. It started to decay. The result of sin was death. But what he meant more than just physical death is that we are, we are separated spiritually now. Right? We know that when sin entered the world, God's total, perfect, holy, and righteous presence was no longer able to be there with them in the garden. He had to kick them out. And then everybody born from them forward was born with this cursed, corrupted sin nature. And we've seen God tell Moses even, right? Like, my total, perfect presence, I, I, it'll burn you up. It'll destroy you. I, I, I can't be with you in the way I was in the garden anymore. There was a veil, a separation introduced by sin. And so those bodies, those perfect bodies that I believe they had in the garden then began to decay and physically die. And, and you know, again, that was passed on to everybody born since. And, and then we talked about it in a previous study so that when the physical body dies, that's not the end. That just means that your soul is separated from this physical body and your soul goes on. Your soul continues to live. It continues to have consciousness. The question is, where will your soul have eternal consciousness? Is it going to be in heaven? Or is it going to be suffering in the lake of fire forever? And we talked about that. That when the Bible talks about the second death, it's referring to death in the context of eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from life and contentment and peace and joy. Eternal separation from that. Instead, cast into suffering in the lake of fire, Revelation 20 talks about. And so, 
you have to understand this idea that the very notion of separation from God in any way, the very notion of any type of veil between us and him, the very notion of being disconnected on any level is done away with in eternity completely. It's completely done away with. Heaven is presented repeatedly throughout Scripture, not as going to heaven. As a matter of fact, if you do a search for that, you'll find out that nowhere in Scripture does it ever talk about going to heaven. It refers to heaven in the context of being with Christ. That's heaven. That's ultimately what heaven is and what it means. Heaven is a complete disillusion of division. It's a complete destruction of separation between us and our creator in every single way. Now, we're going to get and talk about that in a little bit of what that means because the idea here is that the first heaven and the second heaven and the third heaven, those are just ways for, for people to understand sky and, and all of that. In the, but in the new earth, in the new heaven, and the transcendent realm, it's all going to be together at the same time. It's all heaven. And we in our glorified bodies are going to be able to interact with all of it in the same time. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Let's deal with this idea of separation. Because I believe it's hinted at in verse 1. It says, and the sea was no more. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. And the sea was no more. And you go, that, that, doesn't that seem like an out-of-place detail a little bit? Like we're talking about a new universe, we're talking about a new earth. Later on, we're going to see where God comes to dwell with us, his people, his redeemed, who have new glorified bodies. And then, oh, by the way, there's no ocean. <laughs> what, what, what's, what's, what's the idea here? It's a weird detail. But, again, reading literally in view of the fact that there's literally a new universe and literally a new earth, that it is simply saying that this new physical earth will have no ocean upon it anymore. No sea. The new earth will be quite different from this one, right? We understand that this world that we live in now is, is quite a watery world, right? And so much about this earth depends on water, right? Two-thirds of this earth is water. Most of our current bodies are water. Most of plant and animal life is water. And, and, and this earth is the only planet that we're aware of that has enough water needed to sustain life. Right, everybody always gets excited. We found something that might be a, a molecule of water on Mars. <gasps> Therefore, aliens. Is it a molecule of water? We don't know, but it might be. Therefore, aliens. Right? They get all excited about that. But it's because water. Water is essential to life here in this creation. You know, we know if you don't drink water, you could physically die. Some of us are like, Soda's water, right? No. Water is water, okay? Here, I'm, I'm not here to get on that soapbox. Okay, so. But then in eternity, it says, it gives us this detail, there's no sea, right? We know there's water because in Revelation 22.1, it tells us that there's the river of the water of life flowing through the center of the city, right? So we know there's water in the, in the new thing, but there's no sea, there's no sea, and, and, and it's like, well, why bring this up? What is the detail? I mean, I believe one, yes, it's to illustrate that the new earth, right, the biosphere, the, the, how the ecologies work together, it's going to be radically different, profoundly different from this first earth, very similar in the way of how Paul demonstrates in 1 Corinthians 15 how radically different our glorified physical body will be different from our current physical body. 
But again, it doesn't mean it can't also have symbolic meaning. Now and in John's time, the physical sea um, in a lot of ways um, provides natural barriers between peoples and between nations and between um, just so much, you know. And in, in, in the sea in John's time uh, symbolically represented this type of division between the peoples, you know. It was seen as this place of just, just tumultuous, unpredictable, just chaos and danger, but it was this thing that, like, you know, separated out the peoples. And so it could be symbolic of this, the reality on the new earth is that there's no separation. There's no separation anymore. There's no separation between peoples. There's no separation between people and God, right? Verse 3 in Revelation 21, it says, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. That's the point. There's no separation anymore just as it was in the garden. A relationship that was made possible in the garden because they had uncursed bodies, a situation that will be possible again for us because we will have uncursed bodies. We will be in our glorified bodies. Now, what's an interesting note here is when we think of these existing physical bodies, right, one of the physical limitations of this body in this creation is we are limited to this earth, aren't we? Right? Can we fly? Not on our own. We need technology to fly, right? We're separated from the terrestrial heaven, if you will. And if we go too high into that terrestrial heaven without heaven, without protection, we suffocate. What about the celestial heaven? We're separated from that, aren't we? Like you just watch some like space horror movie to, to get an idea of what happens, right? They're, oh, when people are unprotected in space, you die. You, you turn into an ice cube. Right, so you have to have astronaut suits and spaceships and stuff. But we've been able to, to, through technology, make it that far. But we can't get to the third heaven, can we? Not physically, not on our own. And then, like I mentioned earlier, God told Moses, right, even if you could, you'd, you'd all burn up. This body that you currently have, a part of this creation, it cannot be in the full presence of God. You can only be in the afterglow of God. You can only be in God's presence spiritually, but not in the totality of his presence. But our new glorified bodies, man, they're going to have different capabilities, Scripture seems to indicate. Remember Jesus after his resurrection? He's the first fruit, the Bible tells us, of all who will be resurrected. What do we know about Jesus after his resurrection? He was able to appear and disappear at will. You know what we call that? Teleportation. I'm like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I could just with a thought be anywhere. Jesus' glorified body was able to do that. He was able to pass through walls, it says, pass through doors, meaning that he had a physical body, but that physical body also existed on a dimension that we don't physically or don't currently have the ability to interact with. What exactly that means, I'm not sure, but we see it. He was still able to interact with the physical. He was still able to eat and drink and sit. But, but he had this other abledness in his resurrected body. I think our resurrected bodies are going to be similar. Philippians 3.21 says this, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body but the power that enable, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And then in Matthew 22.30 
we read Jesus telling the Pharisees, for in the resurrection, or the Sadducees, I mean, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, the primary context of that section is, is that the angels don't worry about themselves and who they're married to and that they just serve God, right? And that's the primary context of the section there, that, that you know, people are asking this, this difficult question about marriage. And he's going, look, in heaven, there's going to be no marriage, right? There's going to be this, this perfect, beautiful preoccupation with God. I don't have time to get into all the other nuances. Are we going to know our loved ones in heaven? I believe so, but it's going to be different. But... But if you put Philippians 3 and Matthew 22 together, um, it bears asking the question, will, will we be no longer limited the way we are in these physical bodies, limited in our ability to travel, to move through creation? You know, will we be able to just kind of freely move through the, the first and second and the third heavens since they're all together one in eternity, right? They're just one together. God's presence is with us. Are we going to be able to, like the angels who dwell in the uh, transcendent heaven, also be able to appear on the physical realm and move seamlessly between? Possible. Pretty beautiful. There's no more separation in that sense. And so, like I said, the physical sea was also symbolic of this unpredictable, dangerous things. And, and the sea is often used biblically, symbolically, to represent wickedness and changeability and, and all of that. And so the idea is that the new earth will not be a, few, a place of separation. There'll be perfect unity, perfect fellowship with God in his presence at all times. We won't be limited the same, same way we are now. It'll be a perfect paradise, a place for us to enjoy just as Adam and Eve were called to in the garden. Enjoy this place. There will be no sin, no temptation of sin, right? It's just going to be this beautiful, beautiful existence, and it won't be a place of fear. There will be no unrest, no turmoil, no chaos. Basically, it's everything that was messed up by sin is restored by God in the end. Everything that was messed up is restored. And we call it the end, but it really is a beginning of eternity. Beautiful. Now, we're going to deal with verse 2 when we get to verse 9 uh, and deal with the New Jerusalem. But verse 3, he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. He said, Look. This voice said, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That is really what heaven is all about. As cool as teleporting is going to be, that's not what heaven's about. As, as, as interesting it is to ponder, you know, the realities of what is the glorified body going to be, that's not what it's about. It's about being with God. It has always been God's desire to spend time in close fellowship with his people. That has always been God's desire, but sin has been in the way since the fall. So throughout God's word, what we see is in the Old Testament, God set up a dwelling, right? The word is, is here in the Greek when it says God's dwelling is with humanity. That word literally means in the Greek, tabernacled. It's referring to a temporary dwelling place, a tent, Right? We see that in the Old Testament. God set up a dwelling. God set up a tabernacle wherein his presence dwelt there with his people. However, it was behind the veil. It was in the Holy of Holies there with the Ark of the Covenant. It tells us that he appeared in the form of a pillar of fire and smoke to guide his people day and night. 
Then eventually there was a temple, and we know God's glory dwelt in the temple, again, behind the veil in the place where, where God's glory was, and, and it was a place, it was an uh, existence of separation. God wanted to be with his people, but he couldn't be there in his full glory, so there was the veil. And then to remind everybody of why the veil was there, once a year the high priest would get to go behind that veil into the presence of God to make the, the sacrifice, the atonement, to, to cover the sins of the people. But man, if he wasn't prayed up and ready, right? You remember they tied the, the bail, the bail, bell? So they're like listening, okay, he's still moving around, jingle, jingle, jingle. Thump. No more Jingle. They had a rope around his ankle. Pull him out. We need a new high priest, right? Who wanted to sign up for that job? That guy just got struck down dead. Um, anyways, because God's presence was so holy, but God had such great desire to be with his people. And so that separation that existed, it required sacrifices and ritual and cleansing and all of this, and, and there was always this separation. And then to finally bridge that gap, God sent his own son into the world. The Bible says his name is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. The word of God, the word that was God, the word that is God came and, and clothed himself in flesh, came and dwelt among us, it says, tabernacled, same word, where he lived a perfect life, veiled by flesh, but then he died as the atonement, the permanent atonement for sin. We read in that story as the veil in the temple was then torn top to bottom, right? Symbolizing that spiritual access is available to everybody now. Not yet a physical presence, but a spiritual access to God available to everybody. And then it tells us that God himself, through those who put their faith in him, comes to dwell inside us spiritually, the Holy Spirit who dwells within his people, right? We have glimpses of this relationship with God now, but they're just glimpses of what's to come in heaven. Eternity, in eternity, God's dwelling is in an entirely different sense. No more veil. No more ritual. No more separation. No more cloth tent. No more structure, not even God being clothed or veiled in flesh in a sense. His entire presence, his full glory, his total existence dwells with us. His entire presence. And again, that's, that's something hard to wrap our minds around because we can't fully understand the, the three in one. And Christ has a physical body and yet he's God at the same time. And, and, but we're going to get it when we get there. I know we are. The Bible says we see so many things now like through a, through a, through a smoked glass. We see things like, ugh, I can kind of make it out, but I can't really fully understand. Why? Because there's still separation. But in eternity, it'll be gone. It's God in his pure and full presence dwelling with and dealing directly with his people. Yes, today, it's a little bit different. But then it'll be one-to-one, face-to-face, visible, a tangible relationship, as verse 3 says. God will be with us. And this is an experience I think every believer longs for. We all long for that. We all look forward to that. I mean, that, that's that life, that eternal life, that Zoe we've talked about. That's, that's the thing we're looking forward to. And it's difficult at times now to, to walk in 
and to, to reconcile the relationship we have today with what is effectively an invisible God. Sometimes it's hard to, to deal with that. That happens to be, incidentally, one of the big critiques and slanders that non-believers have about Christians. Oh, you believe in your big invisible God in the sky. And I think in this life we'll never be completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. I don't think that'll happen until we see the face of God, and that's why we long for heaven. That's why we look forward to this time. Knowing that a new heaven and a new earth and the eternal state that awaits us, a state without tears, a state without death, without separation, without grief, without pain, in perfect peace, in perfect joy, in perfect contented bliss, it should cause us to yearn for home, to yearn for home, for it's truly an existence where all that former stuff has passed away. Same phrase, ceased to exist. So, you know, all the faith experience that, that we can experience here now as Christians, you know, all the different stuff we go through, we have, we have times of worship, right? And we're like, oh, it's so wonderful, right? And we have times of fellowship and gathering together, you know, here at church in our community groups. We have, we have these moments, right, where, where, you know, we've all had them, right? You all say, wow, I feel so close to God, right? Like things seem to be clicking spiritually, right? And everything is just, you know, that wonderful, you know, awesome thing. Those, those, are, those are great but those moments are not meant to fully satisfy us. They're meant to give us a taste. They're meant to give us a glimpse of what's to come. And I pray for all of us this morning that if the world has a grip on you in any way, a grip that has maybe led you to not be so excited about heaven, because while there's something here that's, that's, that's temporary, that's, ooh, it's exciting, the new shiny thing, and, and, but it's sinful. It doesn't glorify God. I pray that if the world has a grip on you like that, that it would be loosened this morning, that God, to the power of his Holy Spirit, would break that hold on your life, that you would again be exuberant, about the hope of heaven, about the paradise to come, that you would see all of this, everything in this life around us is just temporary, but a vapor. That doesn't mean we, we don't be diligent and we don't be wise and we don't, you know, do what we got to do and take care of our business, but it is not the end all. That new shiny thing, that, that new car, that new house, those better clothes, that new purse, that new video game, that new computer. Those things that we find ourselves enslaving ourselves to debt to get and enslaving ourselves to, to, to just, we're just so consumed with these things and they're all temporary. They're all temporary. And all they do is occupy us so that we lose sight of what is ahead. Now, yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying, I would like a car that starts. Awesome. There's nothing wrong with having a new vehicle. That's not what I'm saying. A new house. and it, it, None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But if they 
occupy your heart and your mind, and they're the, they're the point of your living, you're missing out. You're missing out big time on what God has for you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, whether you're in our room or watching online, I pray, I pray that the picture of what is to come for those who have embraced salvation Embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith. The hope of a future without pain, without tears, without grief, without sorrow of any kind, but instead a forever and eternity with perfect joy and happiness and contentment and, and perfect fellowship with your Creator who loves you in a way you'll never fully understand, I don't think, until we get there. But a love which you can get a taste of in this life by your God. I pray that all of that would lead you to repentance for the sin that you've committed in your life. It would lead you to cry out for your creator, your creator, God Almighty, Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness. Because without that forgiveness, without that mercy, without that grace, without that salvation, judgment is coming. And we've studied that already in Revelation, that that judgment will be severe and that judgment will be eternal. But it's not an eternal death. It's not an eternal suffering. It's not an eternal separation from God that he wants. He would rather have a perfect fellowship, joining, being united with you forever. As a matter of fact, in, in, in his mind, in his, he's, he's preparing the place. And he can't wait for you to get there. But if you hold on to your sin, you're holding on to that separation. And if you die holding on to that sin, you will be forever permanently separated. And that is not what God wants. God's desire is for you to be saved from this body of sin and death, to be saved from the judgment to come, and to be part of the new heavens and the new earth, the paradise that awaits those who call him Lord and Savior. What could, be, what could be better? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. God, we so often get distracted by the things of this world. And Lord, I know you know. It's balancing the, the reality of taking care of the business that you've put before us, to be wise stewards of what you've given us in this earth, our time, our talents, our resources. The life you've called us to live after getting saved and becoming your children, and you said while you are going, while you are living, while you are working, while you are doing whatever it is this life has put in front of us, you said preach the gospel. Tell others about the hope of heaven. Tell others about the salvation available to them. Share with them what it's like to live handling your business, but not consumed by these things. Share with them what it's like to know that there's a future promise, there's a future heaven that transcends in every possible way anything good that, that we think the things of this world will give us. Tell people about that. Lord, help us to be those people. 
Help us to live our lives looking forward to heaven with great eagerness and great excitement and great enthusiasm. Help us to be people, God, that are looking forward to the paradise that awaits. Always knowing, God, in humility that, that we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But through faith in Jesus Christ, it has been granted to us. And that, God, while we're in this journey towards that perfection, that we would be people who live lives of gratitude. Living lives to say, God, I just, I just want to be who you're calling me to be and live how you're calling me to live. And, and, and that includes our priorities and that includes our, our stuff and that includes our money and that includes our time. Because, God, we believe you. We believe your word. We believe eternity is coming. Help us to live like it, Lord. Give us peace. Give us joy. Give us now what we, what we have access to through the life that is in you. But let us not forget, Lord, it is a glimpse of what is to come. We love you so much. God, I pray for those that may have heard this message and don't know you. That in the quietness of their own heart, they would just cry out to you and say, God, I need you. That they would say, God, save me. God, forgive me. Be my God. Be my Savior. I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I believe in Jesus. And then God, may they be full of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance, the promise given, the seal put upon their heart that they are yours now and forever. May they learn of you every single day, God, and grow in this walk and relationship and how to be in this life people who are citizens of the next. And as a church, God, that we would grow together in support of one another, support of, of, of your work and your kingdom, God, that we would be people who hold one another up and hold one another accountable, and God, that we would together collectively endeavor to glorify you in this time because we know we're going to live in your glory forever. Thank you, Jesus. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.